1 Samuel chapter 28, verses 15 through 19. Saul answered, I am in great distress, for the Philistines are warring against me, and God has turned away from me and answers me no more, either by prophets or by dreams. Therefore, I have summoned you to tell me what I shall do. And Samuel said, Why then do you ask me, since the Lord has turned from you and become your enemy? The Lord has done to you as he spoke by me, for the Lord has torn the kingdom out of your hand and given it to your neighbor David, because you did not obey the voice of the Lord and did not carry out his fierce wrath against Amalek. Therefore, the Lord has done this thing to you this day. Moreover, the Lord has, will give Israel also with you into the hands of the Philistines, and tomorrow you and your sons shall be with me. The Lord will give the army of Israel also into the hand of the Philistines. Morning. We're in 1 Samuel 28 this morning as we go through this summer our favorite Bible stories. I'm not sure who uh, suggested 1 Samuel 28 as their favorite Bible story, but boy, is it a weird one. So I don't know if it's their favorite Bible story or it's just uh, a uh, Bible story they found uh, strange, but I'm uh, happy to take some time to look at it with you this morning. One quick announcement, if you didn't uh, notice, uh, I mentioned it last week in the first service and failed to in the second service. We've hit the halfway mark for our fireside room remodel, and that's awesome. So thank you for those who are supporting that uh, remodel, and uh, we are glad we hit the halfway mark. What that means, what we said is when we hit the halfway mark, we're going to start to work. So here very soon, as soon as we get uh, the schedule lined out with some contractors, Fireside Room will be closed, and we're going to begin the work in there. So that's exciting. We thank the Lord for that. We thank, for the, thank you for your uh, kindness and generosity towards that project. 1 Samuel 28 is the end of a story. So 1 Samuel 20 is the end of the story. In fact, 1 Samuel is the last day of his life. It's the last full day of his life. The next day, he's dying. He's going to die the next day. So it's actually the end of, uh, so, did I say Samuel? I meant Saul, of course. And if you heard Samuel, you heard wrong. I always speak correctly. It's the end of Saul's journey. It's the end of his life. And what I want to do is I want to show how we got here from there. How we got there from here. How do we end up where he ends up asking a medium to bring up dead Samuel? How did we get that? How did we get here? And we need to find out what led to this momentous occasion. And really, it's a great tragedy. But let me start with this, with another brief story. A guy invented a computer program. In this computer program, you play a game, and this game is called Minecraft. Maybe you've heard of Minecraft, or maybe you've heard of others who have played Minecraft. He invented this game where you interact with essentially cubes, blocks, on a computer screen, and you build stuff and make stuff. And he sold that computer program to a little software company called Microsoft, for a little over two billion dollars. This guy invents a game where you hit cubes with a pickaxe. And he made two billion dollars off of that thing. Yeah, good for him. What are you gonna do? You know, congratulations. Yeah, there's no there's just no figuring sometimes. After this occasion and he was enjoying his life, he sent out two messages in social media via Twitter, as it turns out, and here are the two tweets he sent out at a certain point. First one. The problem with getting everything you want is you run out of reasons to keep trying. The problem with getting everything you want is you run out of reasons to keep trying. And then this tweet I'm summarizing, 
even with all the fantastic parties and hanging out with compelling celebrities and having everything I want when I want it, I have never felt more isolated. That's kind of interesting, I think. Maybe he's just got, of course, what we're all going to say, no, 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 if I had $2 billion, I wouldn't feel that way. The problem is he's got problems. And the issue here is this man, along with every other human who has ever lived, as one commentator said, is on a quest for happiness or a quest for peace. Everybody is on a search for peace. And King Saul in the Old Testament is no different. He's on a search for peace. And I want to show you three ways he tried to find peace that resulted in the story of 1 Samuel 28. Three ways he tried to find peace that resulted in the tragic end of his life, seeking to converse with Samuel through a medium, and it's because his ways of finding peace were broken. The first occasion is in 1 Samuel 13. It's only a year or so after after Saul has become king. And he was gathered against the Philistines, and he had communicated with Samuel, who at that time was still alive. Before he was going to engage these great Philistine army in battle, Samuel, like would often be done according to the priest, was going to come and make a burnt offering that they might seek God's favor and his kindness and his leading in this battle. The Philistines were gathered and seven days had gone by and Samuel still wasn't showing up because he couldn't be bothered to be on time. And in fact, the Bible tells us in 1 Samuel 13 that his men were beginning to scatter. We discover at the end of 1 Samuel 13 that he was left with about 600 guys by the time it was all said and done. That's not a big army against the vast Philistine horde. So as he's waiting and his men are scattering and as, as the Philistines are gathering and he knows that an offering has to be offered that he might pursue God's blessing in this battle, he does what anybody would do in that situation, right? He offers the offering himself. Is what it says in 1 Samuel 13, 8. He waited seven days, but Samuel didn't come and the people were scattering. So Saul said, bring me the burnt offering here and the peace offerings. And so King Saul offered the offerings. What's the problem with that? You, you don't offer the offerings. He's king. He is not the priest. In fact, he's not even of the tribe of Levi. He's of the tribe of Benjamin. The offerings are to be offered by a Levitical priest, the priest from the tribe of Levi. That's what Samuel was going to do. So King Saul was violating the code that God had given them to worship him rightly. As soon as he had finished offering the burnt offering, Samuel shows up. Of course. Of course. He's probably hiding behind a tree. Now, I don't know. That, I don't know if he was or wasn't. And Samuel says this. What have you done? And Saul gives him his three data points for making good leadership decisions. Let me give you my data points, uh, Mr. Late Pants. People were scattering. There was a big Philistine horde, and you weren't here. Three data points. I need to offer an offering. I need to win this battle. And let me give you my decision-making matrix. Big Philistine army, army is, my army is scattering, and you're not here. Based on three, these three pieces of information, the appropriate action to take was for me to make the burnt offering. What's the one data point he was missing? The word of God, which says you don't offer the burnt offering. Whether your entire army is fleeing, whether the entire world is gathered against you, whether Samuel is not only late, he's never coming, you don't offer the burnt offering. 
But the problem with Saul in this instance was he was looking for God to be a convenient source of strength, not a source of relational connection. Look at Samuel's response to King Saul in 1 Samuel 13, 13, 13. Samuel said to Saul, you've done foolishly. You have not kept the command of the Lord your God with which he commanded you. For when the Lord, the Lord would have established you kingdom over Israel forever. But now your kingdom shall not continue. The Lord has sought someone after his own heart. And the Lord has commanded him to be prince over his people because you have not kept what the Lord has commanded you. So the answer is to you, King Saul, had you sought the Lord in relationship and meaningful, worshipful connection, he would have established you as king over Israel. However, since you didn't, and you disregarded the Lord, he has rejected you out of hand to pursue a king who will be a man after his own heart. First thing Saul did in his search for peace. If you like titles, that's the title, by the way, A Search for Peace. First way Saul searched for peace is through religion. What's religion? Religion is anything we try to do to convince God to do what we want. Now, there's a good form of religion, which is trust Jesus. And as a life of worship towards Christ, make my life more like him. But the religion we see exemplified here is, what are the levers I have to pull to get God to be obligated to do what I think ought to be done? So that's religion. So what Saul, King Saul is saying, how do I have peace? I have victory over the Philistine horde. My armies don't scatter, and the priest shows up on time. Priest can't, can't control him. How can I get God to do what I want so I can have peace? Offer a burnt offering. The offering for King Saul in that moment has nothing to do with connecting with God. It has everything to do with trying to get God to give me what I think will give me peace. So God, if you're saying if I offer a burnt offering, I'll have victory over the Philistines, and so I will have peace. This is what religion seeks to do. It's not seeking peace through a relationship with God. It's seeking peace through some other thing I think will give me peace by trying to convince God to do that for me. I'll have peace if I make a certain amount of money. What do I have to do to convince God to give me a certain amount of money? I'll have peace if my marriage is doing better. What do I have to do to get God to convince my, my spouse to do things the way I want them done? But that's what religion does. Religion is trying to obligate God to give me peace through some other thing that I believe will give me peace instead of finding peace with God alone. So the first way that Paul... I'm going to do that through the whole sermon. The, the first way King Apostle Paul... May as well just own it, right? The first way King Saul sought to find peace and failed was to seek peace through religion instead of actually trying to have a relationship with God. The next error he makes is seeking peace through power and influence. One chapter down in 1 Samuel, 1 Samuel 14. A fight had started with the Philistines, probably a a battle a little bit later on. The fight had started with uh, Jonathan, his son, climbing a ravine and then... uh, Israel is having a pretty good time uh, whipping up on uh, the Philistines in this occasion, but, but Saul really wanted to make sure the Philistines were wiped out good and serious because he would have peace if the Philistines were dead. And so what he wanted to do is get his guys to do what needed to be done. And so Saul laid an oath on his men saying, Cursed be the man who eats food until it is evening and I am avenged on my enemies. 
So Paul will find peace when he has victory over his enemies. And now the way he's going to do it is through the force of his might, the force of his authority, the force of his will on the people around him, convince them to do what needs to be done to give him peace. So the way he's going to get his man to get his victory is tell him nobody eats until they're all dead. So using the authority of his throne, the authority of his role as king, he threatens his men. You will be cursed by God and by his king if you eat anything before the Philistines are done. Again, what, what's his, his quest for peace is the death of the Philistines. How am I going to get it? If I can convince the people around me to give me, what will give me peace? His son Jonathan hadn't heard this order. Remember that? Jonathan's rolling through the woods. He's, ha- he's killing people doing what he does. He's an efficient killing machine. And uh, he happens upon a honeycomb. Hungry as he is from killing Philistines, because guess what? Nothing makes you more hungry than killing Philistines. That's what I've heard. So he picks up some honey, and he eats the honey. And the Bible says his eyes brightened. Why? Because look at this. I'm out in the woods, and God's giving me some tasty honey. Not only that, honey is full of sugar, from what I understand. He gets a little kick. All right, here we go. It's like, it's like Bible times Red Bull is what's going on here. Gives him wings. So, I don't know. What, I'm sorry. I apologize for that. It's terrible. So he goes on. They keep finding, Finally, they get to the end of the thing, and they had a pretty decent victory. But it wasn't great. Jonathan, in fact, was discovered as having eaten honey, and his father, King Saul, wanted to kill him. And the men had to rescue Jonathan from his dad. Here's what Jonathan had to say about his dad's order, trying to use his power and influence to get what he wanted. My father, this is uh, 1 Samuel 14, I think, 14, 29. My father has troubled the land. See how my eyes have become bright because I tasted just a little bit of honey. How much better if the people had eaten freely today of the spoil of their enemies that they found. For now the defeat of the Philistines hasn't been that great. So Jonathan here is understanding the king was seeking peace through the force of his will by trying to get everyone around him through his force of power to give him what he wanted. And the result was actually less effective leadership. And he never found peace. If I get what I want through the force of my will, through my, my influence, my manipulation, my, my power, my money, whatever I can do to get people to do what I want, if I can finally have what I want, I'll have peace. Didn't work for Saul. Won't work for us either. Finally, 1 Samuel 15. Let me remind us the ways he's sought peace so far. First one, religion. Second one, power. Third one, cunning. Smartest guy in the room. So Samuel went to King Saul and he said, I want you to wipe out the Amalekites. King Saul's, I'm on it. We all remember the Amalekites. The Amalekites attacked the people of Israel when they were traveling from uh, Egypt to the Promised Land. And after God gave Moses and Joshua victory over the Amalekites, God told Moses, write this down. I mean, write it down. We need to get after the Amalekites when you come into the Promised Land. We need to have, they will be judged by God because of their evil in this occasion, attacking them on the wilderness wanderings. And, and Samuel comes to King Saul and says, it's time to make good on that promise. We need to go wipe out the Amalekites. So King Saul goes and attacks the Amalekites, and guess what? Has a great victory. What was the command of the Lord? What was to be left of the Amalekites? A smoking plume. That's what was supposed to be left. Instead, what did King uh, Saul bring back with him? All of the livestock 
and King Agag alive. Why would King Saul bring all of the livestock and King Agag back alive? Because Samuel, you know what, Sam? Let's be honest. You're a really good priest, even though the whole being on time thing is a problem. I mean, you know, let's just keep working on that. But as a king, you make a really good priest. Because kings know what you do when you attack people. You take plunder. That's how you enrich your kingdom. That's how you establish your kingdom. You take plunder. This is, this is not a big deal. This is what is done. And finally, why? not only that, but you keep the other king alive. Why would you do that? As a threat to the other kingdoms around me. Oh, you want to attack my kingdom? Guess who sits at my table and asks me for dinner? Other kings I've conquered. This happens later in the Babylonian kingdom. One of the sons of Josiah is in prison in Babylon hundreds of years later, and the king of Babylon, one of the sons of Nebuchadnezzar, brings the king of Israel out of prison, and he spends the rest of his days eating at the Babylonian royal court's table. Why? Because Babylon wanted to be able to tell its neighbors, you don't want to invade us. We have kings that we keep on uh, display. If you want to come into our museum, it's a live museum of kings we've conquered. And King Saul is no different. Smartest guy in the room. I know what to do when I have victory. I keep the plunder for the men to keep them on my team. I keep the king as a threat to the neighbors around me. And Samuel shows up. And King Saul says, Sam, hit it out the park today. They didn't have a chance. And what does Samuel say? I hear mooing. I didn't think dead cows mooed. Is there something different about your dead cows? Because most dead cows don't moo. Why are the cows not dead? Why are the sheep sheeping, bleeding? But see it then verbally. Why are the sheep making sheep noises? Are they not dead? Because they're all supposed to be dead. Oh, yeah, Sam. Uh, some of the guys wanted to keep some of them. Um, you know how those guys are. They're not faithful to the Lord like you and I. And then, by the way, Sammy, I I, I brought the king back. So, you know, we're pretty good. And Samuel loses his mind. Here's what Samuel has to say. He says, you have lost your kingdom. The Lord will tear it from your hands because you have not been faithful to the Lord. The Lord called you to destroy everything. See, Saul wanted peace, not through following the Lord in relationship with the Lord. King Saul wanted peace by being the smartest guy in the room. I know what needs to be done. I'm an effective king. I'm a man of the world. I've taken the class. I've gone to the conference. I know what's dialed in for a king. And, king, and Samuel says, no, no, I just want you to obey what God says for you to do. King Saul says, I have sinned. This is 1 Samuel 15. I've transgressed because I feared the people. Samuel says this, I will not go back with you, for you have rejected the word of the Lord, and the Lord has rejected you as king over Israel. Well, Saul confessed. Why wouldn't? Why did God not forgive King Saul? Because he wasn't confessing. He was still being the smartest guy in the room. Okay, I blew it. I got to show up again, and Samuel's got to be with me. Otherwise, everybody's going to know I'm not very religious. And so he begs Samuel to come back with him. No, Sam, you got to come with me. If I show up in town with this victory, and you're not with me, everybody's going to think the Lord's abandoned me. So again, he's just working the angles. Smartest guy in the room. He finally convinces Samuel to come back with him. Even against Samuel's better judgment. Verse 32, Samuel said, bring Agag, king of the Amalekites, to me. Agag came cheerfully because he said, surely the bitterness of death is past. 
Samuel said, as your sword has made women childless, so your mother will be childless among women. And Samuel, I love this, how the ESV translates it. It's most accurate. And Samuel, what's it say? Hacked Agag to pieces before the Lord. I know. Samuel's getting after her here. Why do you think Samuel was a little riled up? Was he rightfully riled up? Yes, the, the king has rejected the Lord, and the Lord has rejected the king. We're going to get to it in a few weeks in the book of Esther. The Bible tells us Haman, come on, God, boo, come on, it's Haman. Haman, what, Haman was a what? Agagite. So he, he, his lineage is coming here from the Amalekites. I, we could put it this way, I might surmise it this way. If Saul does his job, there's no book of Esther. Since Saul doesn't do his job, we've got Haman the Agagite who's trying to wipe out all the people of Israel. So sin has a long leash on it. So this is Saul's story, pursuing peace and happiness through religion, through power, through cunning, being the smartest man in the room, and now all of a sudden God has rejected him, and we find ourselves in 1 Samuel 28. You wondered when we are going to actually get to the story, right? Samuel was dead. All Israel was gathered, and the Philistines showed up as a gigantic encampment. Saul got all of his army together, and they saw the army of the Philistines, and here is how he responded to the army of the Philistines. He was afraid, and his heart trembled. He inquired of the Lord. What do you think the Lord had to say? The Lord did not answer him. Here's what it says, by dreams, by Urim, or by prophets. What does he mean by that? It's very typical for God to answer the people of Israel and the kings and the prophets and the priests of the Bible through dreams. You see this throughout the Bible. It was also very typical for a king to pursue the word of the Lord from the prophets. None of the prophets came to King Saul with any information, as well as the Urim. The Urim was a stone uh, that the uh, priest kept in his breastplate. And you would ask the priest a question, and we'd reach in and pull one out, and that would indicate the answer of the Lord, yes or no. And what we're discovering here is the Lord is not giving information to the king through the normal ways that the king would normally receive information. So Saul decides to seek information the only way he could figure, which was from Samuel. What's the problem with seeking information from Samuel? He's dead. And, and he's, he's all the way dead. He's not just mostly dead, right? So he decides to pursue a conversation with dead Samuel through a medium, a necromancer, a witch. A search was made for a medium. They found one in Endor. They were difficult to find because Saul at some point in his reign had kicked all of the mediums out of Israel. So they find one, he puts on a disguise, goes to the medium in Endor, and he says to her, will you bring up anyone that I say for you to bring up? And she says, I don't know what you're trying to do, you're trying to trap me. You're trying to get me in a trap and so that you can arrest me and so Saul will kill me. He says, no, don't worry about it. That appeared to convince her. Who do you want me to bring up? And he says, Samuel. So she does whatever she does. And Samuel comes up, and the woman cried out when she saw him. And when she saw Samuel, she knew immediately she was talking to King Saul. And she says, see, I knew you were going to trap me. And King Saul says, no, don't worry about it. Nothing's going to happen. What do you see? And she describes what she sees. And King Saul realizes it is Samuel, and he falls on his face. 
in front of Samuel. This is what Samuel says. Samuel said, why have you disturbed me by bringing me up? Saul answered, I'm in great distress. The Philistines are warring against me, and God has turned away from me, and he answers me no more, either by prophets or by dreams. Therefore, I've summoned you to tell me what to do. And what does Samuel tell him? Uh, Pat already read it. Let's summarize it this way. Tells him everything he's already told him three times. You have rejected the Lord, so the Lord has rejected you because you don't want the Lord. You want the Lord to give you the stuff you want. You want the Lord to give you victory over the Philistines. You want the Lord to give you a long reign. You want the Lord to give you lots of money and lots of power. You want the Lord to give you lots of armies. When what is the Lord offering? The Lord is offering the Lord himself. But King Saul wants nothing to do with this. And so he faces judgment. Verse 18, we've already read it once, but let's read it again. Because you did not obey the voice of the Lord and carry out his fierce wrath against Amalek, the Lord has done this to you. Moreover, the Lord will give Israel in your hand, uh, give Israel over to the Philistines, and tomorrow you and your sons will be with me. That's a nice way of saying tomorrow you die. It doesn't mean they're going to be with Samuel. In the Hebrew view of death, you go into Sheol, the grave. In the grave, there's uh, two experiences. One is paradise with God. The other is torment. So he's saying you will be in the grave. He's not saying you guys are good. Because the Bible tells us in the book of Hebrews, is appointed for man once to face uh, to die and then to face judgment. So Je- Saul will have to give an account uh, for himself. Saul fell to his ground fell to the ground, and he basically laid motionless. The next day, he and his sons were killed in battle. There's the last full day of Saul's life, and his efforts to get peace were all a tragic train wreck, and so now it's one last-ditch effort to try and find connection with God to give him what he wants. Let me explain what I mean by that. Paul saw... For the love of Pete. Now it's Pete. King Saul sought peace through religion. That is, let me be religious so I get what I want, victory over the Philistines. He sought peace through power. That is, let me be strong enough to get what I want, victory over the Philistines. He, he sought uh, peace through being the smartest guy in the room. And let me explain this. If we look at King Saul's reign, we need to understand this. He was wildly successful. Most of the time, he defeated the Philistines. Most of the time, his men were loyal to him. Most of the time, the economy in Israel under King Saul improved. King David, in his lament for King Saul, says this, O women of Israel, mourn, for King Saul has clothed you in scarlet and put gold chains around your neck. So what we must understand about King Saul, he was not a failure. He pursued peace in all the ways we've outlined here, and he hit it out of the park every time. He got what he wanted except for one thing. What is that? The peace. He did everything he wanted to do and accomplished what he wanted to do. And at the end of the day, he finds himself face down in front of a witch trying to find what? Peace. This is the last full day of Saul's life. All of his efforts to get peace have basically resulted in wild success for him, except he did not have peace. Does that sound familiar with the guy who invented Minecraft? He's gotten everything he wanted, and he's empty as he ever ever was. 1 Samuel 28. One observation before I want to make some comparisons with somebody else. 
everyone, every single person is on a quest for happiness or a quest for peace, and almost everybody tries to include God in that quest. Everyone's on a quest, a pursuit of peace or happiness, and nearly everybody, especially in our culture anyway, includes God in that quest. But the problem is for most of us, the degree that we think that the degree we include God on that pursuit is just the degree to we think God will give us what we want. We're only including God on this pursuit because we think God might be one of the avenues to get what we want, this other stuff, which will give us peace. The Bible makes it abundantly clear. God is the source of peace. We don't pursue God to get stuff that gives us peace. We pursue God because he is our source of peace. And that's where Saul missed it. And if all of us are honest, at least to some degree, degree we have parallels with Saul. How often are we just religious enough to try and convince God to answer our prayers? Or maybe you're like me, every now and then you need something really bad, and so now I better clean up my act for a week. You ever done that? No, first service stuff, right? Or maybe you do have some power and influence. Maybe you do have people in your home that you can influence. Maybe you do have enough money to get what you want. Maybe you do have enough influence at work or in business or in politics or in community organizations. No, I can, I can get stuff done. There are many of us in our culture who don't have the power to get much done, but there's also many, many of us in our community that actually knows, it turns out, I can get a lot done. Just tell me what needs to get done. And, and we, we think if we can just accomplish everything we set our minds to accomplish, we will have happiness and peace. And you can read the book of Ecclesiastes. King Solomon says, I set out on great building projects, and he built everything he ever wanted. And at the end of the day, it didn't pan out. Finally, we might pursue the same thing. We want to be the smartest person in the room. We've read all the big books with all the big words. We've watched all the videos. We've been to all the right conferences. We'll fill our heads with all kinds of information. But it's hard to experience peace with information in our skulls. So maybe with that idea, if the pursuit of peace is empty through religion, power, and cunning, maybe we should be open to another option for finding peace, and that's through Jesus Christ as our model. So one quick comparison. This will only take, I think, 35 minutes. I've got a clock over here. We should be done by Mother's Day. The search for peace now brings us to the Prince of Peace. Isaiah chapter 9, verse 6. We're not allowed to read this except at Christmas time, so I'm going to break the rules here. For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulders, and his name will be called Wonderful, Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, and finally, what is it? Prince of Peace. I want to compare three occasions in Jesus' life where he contrasts significantly with King Saul as a way of helping us to pursue peace in the proper place. Jesus, John chapter 17. John chapter 17 is a prayer of Jesus to his father in front of his disciples. Here's how it starts. This is John chapter 17, beginning in verse 1. Father, the hour has come. Glorify your son that the son may glorify you. Since you have given him authority over all flesh to give eternal life to all whom you have given him, and this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. What's eternal life? Where's peace? To know the true God and Jesus Christ 
whom you have sent. I have glorified you on earth, having accomplished the work that you gave me to do. Now, Father, glorify me in your own presence with the glory I had before the world existed. And then a little bit further on, let's see, verse... I just got to find you here. Hold on. Verse 20. I do not ask for these only as disciples, but also for those who will believe in me through their word, that they may all be one, just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they may also be in us, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. The glory that you have given me, I have given them that they may be one even as we are one, I in them and you in me, that they may be perfectly one. So the world may know that you have sent me and loved them even as you have loved me. Father, I desire that they also whom you have given me may be with me where I am to see my glory that you have given me because you have loved me before the foundation of the world." Here's Jesus praying to his father, and he's extolling his disciples through this prayer, saying, what is the foundational principle of his relationship with the father? It's a relationship of unity and love. So whereas the King Saul was pursuing a relationship with God, which is based on religion, which is what are the minimum required activities to get God to do what I want? Jesus here helps us understand the correct relationship with God. We find peace with God when we are moved by his love to love God. That is, peace is found in a desire not for God to give us stuff, but for God to give us himself, his ways, his plans, his purposes. Not God for practical reasons in our life, but God as its own end. That if we have found God, we have found all we need to find. That we see God out of a heart-level affection for God, not a, a flesh-level need for God to give me his stuff. Compare Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane, praying on his face, not my will but yours be done, with King Saul before a witch in Endor. God, how do I get you to do what I want? One found peace. That is Christ because of his relationship of, in, with God that is based on love. Of course, King Saul never found peace. So Jesus is coming. He doesn't bring his religion. He brings us a relationship with God that is based on love and affection. Next thing, John 13. We've got 37 of these to look at. John 13. King Saul sought power and influence with his men by telling them, you will not eat until we have victory. And here's Jesus. In the upper room, Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hand, rose from supper, laid aside his outer garment, and took a towel, and he tied it around his waist. He poured water into a basin and began to wash his disciples' feet and to wipe them with the towel that was wrapped around him. He came to Simon Peter, and, and Peter said to him, You're not washing my feet, bro. And Jesus said, If I don't wash your feet, you're not with me. And Peter says, give me a bath. And we all say, Peter, once, can you do us a favor? Just don't say anything. It's fine. You don't have to think, say everything that comes into your brain. You can, you can actually keep some things all to yourself. Isn't this incredible? Jesus, on the night before he was going to be crucified, he wasn't telling his men, 
you will not eat anything until I raise from the dead. He didn't say that, did he? What did he say to his men? You know what, guys? I need to wash your feet. This isn't power. This isn't influence. This isn't somebody wielding and manipulating. This is servanthood. This is seeking the way of God in the world with such confidence that God will accomplish his purposes that we have the freedom to just merely serve others in in humiliating servanthood. The method and the means to accomplish God's purposes are humiliating service to others. As one of my friends said, the contest in the body of Christ is who can get to the bottom the fastest. King Saul said, no one eats until we win. Jesus says, no one eats until I wash your feet. King Saul is looking for peace through power and influence, and Jesus makes it clear to us peace is found with confidence in the glory of God to such a degree that we're willing to serve others who don't deserve it in ways we ought not to have to do. The Prince of Peace loves God. The Prince of Peace serves others in humiliating ways. Last one, John chapter 19. You still with me? All right, two people are with me. Well, that's good. Prince of Peace and meekness. Jesus was standing in front of a guy named Pilate. Pilate said to Jesus, John 19, verse 10, you don't have anything to say because don't you understand? I have the authority to release you and I have the authority to crucify you. So if there's anybody you want to talk to, I'm that guy. Is what Pilate's saying. And Jesus said, uh, you'd have no authority over me unless it had been given to you from above. So uh, good luck with that. You are going to die, Pilate, and you are going to stay dead. I am going to die, Pilate, and you can't keep me dead. So knock yourself out. Then what do we call this? We call this meekness. This is peace not found through glory. This is not peace found through renown or fame or strength or endurance or I'm awesome sauce. This is, not, this is glory in I have so much confidence that God is that good that, you know, I don't need to prove anything to anybody. In fact, I can't prove anything to anybody. God is my proof. This isn't cunning. This isn't the smartest guy in the room. Do you think Jesus could have said the right phrase in that moment to guarantee his freedom? Yes. There was a million phrases he could have said to Pilate. In that moment, the Pilate would have said, you're free. But Jesus said none of them because he understood the purposes of God. Meekness maybe is uh, saying this, intentionally staying out of God's way so that his power can be seen. Intentionally giving the glory of God, not being uh, seeking in any situation to be smart and crafty and wily. It's instead by faith saying, I am anchored to God and that's why I'm immovable, not because of my strength. The Prince of Peace found peace the following three ways. Love of God, humble service of others, and meekness. King Saul sought peace through religion, power, and cunning. He failed, and Jesus is our Prince of Peace. Why did Saul miss it? Because he didn't want God. I mean, that's just a long story short. Why did Saul miss it? He just simply didn't, wasn't interested in God. He wasn't interested in God's kindness. He wasn't interested in God's grace. Or you could maybe say it this way. Saul didn't want to be a king in God's kingdom. Saul wanted to be the king in Saul's kingdom. And he was really good at it, actually. And he had no peace whatsoever. Luke chapter 16, we'll close with this. There's a parable. 
And of course, you know when I say we'll close with this, that means nothing. There's a parable, a rich man dies and Lazarus dies. Lazarus is a poor man. Rich man is named, rich man I think was his name. Lazarus ends up in paradise because he had faith in the Lord. The rich man did not trust the Lord and he ends up in torment. And the rich man calls over to Abraham, uh, who Lazarus is hanging out with. And he says to Abraham, hey, do you mind sending Lazarus back to witness to, give evangelism message to my brothers? I've got some brothers who are still alive. And I want to make sure they avoid this whole situation. And Abraham says this to the rich man. Uh, they've got the Moses and the prophets. Tell them to read their Bible. And he, go, and, and he goes, no, we've done that. You know how it is. The Bible is boring and dull and, and nobody reads it anymore. But you know what? If a dead guy came and, and, and stood and told them, then I bet they would believe. And Abraham says, if they won't believe Moses and the prophets, they're not going to believe even if a man raises from the dead. Saul were those, was those brothers. He, he was standing there and a person raised from the dead stood in front of him. Samuel, standing there talking to him. And what did Saul still not do? What, did, what could he have still done in that moment? Oh man, you're right. I haven't sought the Lord my entire life. I, I get it. I need the Lord. I don't need all this stuff. Yeah, if I have the Lord, tomorrow's date with, with death is not a problem. Do you think if King Saul would have repented at that moment that God would have accepted his repentance and forgiven him? Of course he would have. Have you read the Bible? He's, he's forever forgiving all the kinds of people we don't want forgiven. But even with Samuel standing before him, resurrected, so to speak, King Saul still doesn't want God. He wants God to give him his stuff. And you say, well, I'm different. If somebody rose from the dead, I would believe. But guess what? He did. He rose from the dead three days later. And he walked out the grave. We have hundreds of witnesses to attested over tens of thousands of documents. And we say, well, I don't know. I think it's just a myth. I don't Jesus is raised. And if Jesus is raised, we discover this. The only way to peace is a relationship with God through Jesus Christ. I've said this, and I'll say it this way again. If you don't believe me, that's fine. Keep chasing peace your way. Let me know how that works. Because I've read enough, and I've lived long enough to know exactly how it works. It works for about 20 minutes. And then we need another rush. The only way to find peace is relationship with God through Jesus Christ. Three ideas and then we'll close. God will give you peace with relationship uh, in Jesus Christ. If you want peace, you want Christ. The question is, do you want peace or do you want religion where you get God to give you what you want? If you want Jesus to get God to give you what you want, you don't want Jesus. If you want Jesus because you know God is the source of peace and relationship with him will bring peace, then he's willing to give it to all who would believe in him. How does he give peace? Jesus dies on the cross, pays for our sin. So when we trust him, our sin is washed away. And because Jesus is raised from the dead, we know one day after we die, we will be raised with him and live with God forever. And we will experience that peace anew and afresh every single day. Question you have to ask yourself, do you want religion or do you want Christ? Do you want religion or do you want God? Most people want religion. And you can decide for yourself over time if that's really giving you peace. Next question. Do you want peace or do you just want the strength to do whatever you want? If right now, if you could have God or you could have the power to accomplish anything you want to accomplish, which would you take? 
God will give us peace, though, when we finally give up on our own strength and just trust that God's ways are best. That God's ways are best. That he puts into things into our lives that we can't handle. Jesus gives us peace in humility when we're willing to finally say, you know what, I'm not strong enough to do it. I need God to do it for me. Finally, this. Do you want peace or do you want everyone to recognize how great you are? You want everyone to recognize how good of an employee you are, how good of a money earner you are, how great of a parent you are, how great of a, a golfer you are, how great a whatever. Do you, do you want uh, God's glory? Do you want uh, glory for yourself? Because peace comes when you finally say, you know what, I don't want my life to be about me. I want my life to be about what God's purposes are. And that's when Jesus gives peace. Search th- for peace. Three ways to really fail at it. Religion, power, power being the smartest guy in the room. 